And then Sydney uh, uh, told me that, hey, you go or not now? And I say that I don't want to go. Uh, I'd like to stay behind, but please uh, take my family. Apprehension, but no choice. There's a situation. They have guns. They control you. So that's it. You are caught. I don't think without him, Sydney would not have done the uh, journalism that he was known for. The Killing Fields is a seminal movie. That's partly because it's so shockingly accurate. In addition to the acting of Hang Noor, who survived the Khmer Rouge, the film's source material came from New York Times correspondent Sidney Shanberg and was informed by other journalists who actually lived those moments in history. For the next two episodes, I'm speaking with journalist John Swain and photographer Roland Neveu. Along with Noor, they were the only two people who were both in Phnom Penh in 1975 who were also on the set during the making of the film. Welcome to episode 12 of Who Killed Hang Noor? This is my real-time and crowdsourced podcast in which we explore lingering questions about the murder and the legacy of Dr. Hang S. Noor. Best known for his role in the killing fields, he was also a humanitarian and a businessman. This episode brings us a closer look at Dith Pran, a so-called fixer, whose courage and heroism are what the killing fields is all about. It's one of the defining scenes in the killing fields. Journalist John Swain, Sidney Shanberg, and photographer Al Rockoff are captured by the Khmer Rouge and forced at gunpoint into an armored personnel carrier. This is John Swain. He's a veteran foreign correspondent who was with the British newspaper, The Sunday Times, for 35 years. We were put into an armored personnel carrier and driven to the banks of the Mekong where we had to disembark and they were going to shoot us and throw our bodies into the water. And these were young Khmer Rouge uh, soldiers, uh, peasant soldiers. You know, the oldest was 14 or 15 years old. They were they were disciplined, but at the same time out of control. And if they were told to shoot someone, it just would without, without second thought. They may well have been shot, except for one thing. Dith Pran, who was Shanberg's fixer for the New York Times, talked his way into the APC. That was a breathtakingly courageous thing to do. Then he just kept talking. He was told by the Khmer Rouge commander not to get into the armoured personnel carrier with us because he was a Cambodian and that we were being taken away uh, as Westerners and uh, would suffer the fate of what they decided and they didn't want him around. And he just insisted. And the, the way he talked his way into the armoured personnel carrier, I can never forget because he, he was both humble and assertive in a way. He obviously was speaking Cambodian, Khmer, but he, he knew the Khmer Rouge vernacular very well, and so he could chat with them in the way they talked to each other. Swain, Shanberg, and Rockoff had nothing to do but wait while their fate was being decided in a language they largely couldn't understand. For the record, the Khmer Rouge hated Americans, which Shanberg and Rockoff were. Did Pran tell you afterwards what the tone of his rationale was? Like, don't kill them, they're French, or don't kill them, we need people to report on the Great Revolution? It was very much what you just said. It was, it, these, these Westerners are in Cambodia to report on the revolution. It was very much that. Um, they're not here as, as, as fighting, or they're not Americans. They're here doing a proper job reporting on the revolution, what you've achieved. 
Kron's artful persuasion appealed to Khmer Rouge egos. It sowed enough doubt, and it bought enough time until a more senior Khmer Rouge officer came along. He recognized the journalists for the non-combatants they were. He ordered Swain, Shanberg, and Rockoff to be released and told them to get to the French embassy, where Phnom Penh's remaining Westerners had sought shelter. Dithpran was a fixer. That's the colloquial term for an interpreter, guide, and logistics pro hired by Western news organizations to help correspondents and TV crews report from foreign lands. Some fixers are actually reporters for local news organizations who moonlight for the international press. Personally, having been one, I find the term fixer somewhat denigrating. It denies people their editorial credit. To me, the better terms are assistant reporter, local producer, national producer, things along those lines. That's especially considering how people like Dith Pran punch way above their weight by scoring the interviews and handling the war zone travel that determine editorial coverage, the actual situations the correspondent sees and writes about. Think about it. Sidney Shanberg won the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting for his Cambodia coverage. John Swain agrees about fixers and the contribution of Dith Pran. Having been a, a tour operator, a tour guide in uh, Siem Rep before the war, he, he knew how to handle Westerners anyway, and he knew his country backwards, and he knew how to get to places that to Sydney or other Western journalists might not be able to. He really was a help to Sydney. I don't think without him, Sydney would not have done the uh, journalism that he was known for. Shanberg knew it too. When he accepted the Pulitzer Prize, he shared credit with Dithpran. One thing I want to make clear is that what Dithpran did, talking his way into that APC, was extraordinary, but it was also not exceptional. Fixers risked their lives to save their Western colleagues with shocking frequency. In 2009, in Afghanistan, someone I'll call assistant reporter Sultan Munadi was kidnapped alongside journalist Stephen Farrell, a Brit working for the New York Times. British commandos staged a rescue which turned into a firefight with militants. As they escaped, Munadi rushed ahead of Farrell, shouting, journalist, journalist. He was shot and killed. Munadi's death may have been bad luck, but it looks to me like a disproportionate sense of responsibility toward keeping his foreign colleagues safe that made Munadi leap ahead. The incident prompted George Packer of The New Yorker to write a column entitled, It's Always the Fixer Who Dies. Munadi's death, he noted, was simply the latest in a long-running trend, one that's carried on into Ukraine. Links are on the webpage. Most correspondents I know are decent human beings, and I'd certainly like to think that of myself. I, too, hire fixers. But there's still a wicked power imbalance within the world of international news. When things get tough, the fixer feels responsible. The foreign correspondent gets to leave. As Sydney said at the time, and you know, we all realize Pran has saved our lives. And in one sense, that power imbalance is what the Killing Fields is all about. I spent some time at, around the pool at, at the Royal Hotel, trying to find out from the interpreter, from the driver, and from the, you know, the younger guys, I mean, uh, but I would 
talk sometime to uh, John Swain, which was much more younger and more available in a way, and some other people. So you do build up your network of information because safety. I mean, you need to know what's happening and you need to know where to go. This is Roland Neveu, a French photographer. He began covering Cambodia as a university student. He went back in 1975, a few weeks before the Khmer Rouge seized power. Talking to Roland and John, it's clear to me how much the killing fields gets right and how little has changed since the 1970s. In dangerous situations like Baghdad, for example, the press ends up congregating in one or two hotels for safety. In 1975 Phnom Penh, it was the Royale. Wartime hotels are rumor mills, often driven by hyper-competition. They're also remembered with intense nostalgia for the camaraderie of the press corps, who risk their lives to report the news. Remember from episodes 4, 5, and 6, my Journos trilogy, Cambodia was incredibly dangerous for reporters. In just eight weeks in 1970, 20 journalists went missing out of a press corps of about 60. That's a 30% casualty rate. Most of us stayed in one hotel, the Hotel Royale, and we used to check up in the evening at about five or six o'clock if everyone had come back or not, and if they hadn't, uh, we would alert the military authorities that so-and-so hadn't returned. So we used to do a sort of daily count of journalists as they go out and as, as, as they come back. When someone had disappeared, it did send a real... I mean, the atmosphere in the hotel, which used to be quite jolly, changed uh, that evening, thinking about our comrades, you know. Before that, we'd been drinking around, around the pool, relaxing after a, a day covering the war, or writing our stories and this and the other. And, and then a couple of hours later, we'd know that one of our colleagues was missing, and we'd soon learn that they were dead. So was Dithpran uh, one of the people you would chat up for information? Not really, because we knew that's the New York Times, and, and uh, you know, this guy is not going to tell you anything unless you have friends. So I didn't have time to befriend a guy like this. So, but I would learn some stuff from Rokoff. Roland's book, The Fall of Phnom Penh, is a wonderful collection of photos from April 1975. As a feral freelancer myself, I appreciate reading the calculus to Roland's coverage, eyeing up the Khmer Rouge in this part of town the constant measuring of what he could get away with. Roland's giving me permission to post some shots on whokilledhangnor.com. There are some great ones. As I said, the Khmer Rouge gained total control over Phnom Penh, and everyone ended up at the French embassy. Cambodia used to be a French colony, so that diplomatic ground still held some sway with the Khmer Rouge. This brings us to another infamous scene in the killing fields. It's one that's the most controversial. What really went on with that fake passport? The French embassy was all but overrun. Hundreds of people, Cambodians and foreigners alike, were camped out on the grounds or claiming nooks in hallways and offices. No one knew what was going to happen next, but the war had been pretty bloody so far. Then, the Khmer Rouge ordered all Cambodians and other Asians to leave the embassy. Only those with Western passports were allowed to stay. Shanberg had previously arranged for Dithpran's wife and children to be evacuated. This is a clip I've swiped from an ABC News primetime live broadcast from 1989 that we'll come back to in the next episode. Sorry, ABC, but you've done worse. It's the real Dithpran. And then Sydney. Uh... 
uh, told me that, hey, you go or not now. And I say that I don't want to go. Uh, I'd like to stay behind, but please uh, take my family. History was happening. Dithpron worked in journalism, so he may have wanted to cover the end of the story. But as John's going to tell us shortly, he was also motivated by loyalty and that outsized sense of responsibility. Fast forward, and now Pran was going to be forced out of the embassy. So John Shanberg and Rockoff tried to make a fake passport. Yes, it was my idea. I had a, those old British passports which were in blue and made of cardboard. If you'd filled up one passport, but the passport was still valid, the embassy uh, which you took it to to renew would cancel that passport and stick another passport on top of it. So I, had, I actually had four passports on top of each other because I, I had so many visas in them, um, but the passports were still valid. So I, I ripped off one of them. John's been kind enough to send me photos of those old passports, the ones they tried to doctor. They're on the webpage. They weren't the only ones trying to make fake IDs. French officials were at it too. Roland heard the rumors en français. I also understood that the French consulate had blank passport and they gave away some blank passport. They didn't want, I mean, the rest of us to, to, to see, of course. This is a, the job of the consulate, you know, they have, always have extra passport, you know, on yeah. hand, you know, in case. So I think they use what they had and it, it should be a few dozen. Neither John nor Roland know all the details, but with those quickie passports, French officials probably rescued just Cambodian women who could be passed off as Frenchmen's wives. Meanwhile, John thought Dith Pran could pass for a Nepali. Nepal was once part of the British Empire, so it would be plausible for this Asian man to have a British passport and a Western name. We doctored my name, which is a funny English name, John Anketil Swain, and using a mixture of rice water, uh, I suppose just a rice mixed with water, Very, we actually scrubbed out my name on the front page of the passport and put Pran Rotin in his Anketil John Brewer rather than John Anketil Brewer Swain. So we fiddled around with it. Here's the controversial part. But fortunately Pran actually had a, a passport photograph of himself which fitted that, was of that size. So we took a razor blade and peeled off my photograph and using a mixture of rice and water as, as a glue, we stuck Pran's picture on top of it. That isn't how, what's shown in the film. Do you keep up with the real Al Rock? Al yes, Al yes, well, Al, Al got very cross because he was shown as, in the film, the, uh, the photograph he t allegedly took uh, disappears or fades in, when in the de de development, and he got very angry about that because he said he'd been portrayed as a, as a bad photographer because he couldn't uh, develop pictures and complained. Um, but it was done for dramatic effect. Angry doesn't begin to describe it. The real Al Rockoff is a friendly acquaintance. He's been incensed about the killing field since the film came out nearly 40 years ago. He felt badly maligned by what is, in fact, an entirely fictitious scene. He has so far declined to be part of this podcast. And for the record, I'd also love to interview Dith Pran and Sidney Shanberg, but they've both passed away. And so then, if it was a real photo that you swiped from a different identity card, why was the passport rejected? It didn't look very realistic to the French officials uh, when we handed in and they came over and 
talked to me and to, to, to Sydney and said, look, this won't do. Your fake passport, so to speak, will instantly be recognised as such by the Khmer Rouge and you'll threaten the rest of the people in the embassy. So we, we won't accept it. So that's why Pran decided to leave, because there was nothing else to be done. Roland was among those who bore witness to the scene when Cambodians and other Asians were forced out of the embassy. He describes the atmosphere. Apprehension, but no choice. There's a situation. They control you, so that's it. You are caught. You have no choice. That's the kind of situation. I mean, that's it. You have to go, you have to go. Some people were crying, of course. I mean, not really that, that much, because... Asian, I mean, the fatalistic uh, side is a little uh, higher than for, for the Westerner, for example. So people just uh, uh, say, okay, you, you give it to the gods in a way, so that's it, you know. Eventually, the Khmer Rouge organized some trucks. They drove the remaining Westerners who'd been holed up in the embassy overland to Aranya Pratet, where they were welcomed into Thailand. The Holocaust that was the Khmer Rouge reign over Cambodia was just beginning. What started for Sidney Shanberg was a different kind of hell, captured well in the film. All the films on Vietnam, Cambodia being part of the Vietnam War, I, I put them together. All the films, American films or the Hollywood films, had been about, to my mind, about we Americans are fighting a dreadful war in Vietnam. Look what it has done to us. And this film was a breakaway from that. It was a film about guilt and loyalty by an American correspondent who felt very guilty about not being able to protect his Cambodian fixer, Dit Pran, and Pran's loyalty to Sidney Shanberg, the American journalist, which persuaded him to stay behind in Phnom Penh, risking his life because his boss wanted to stay, or decided to stay, and Sidney was overcome with guilt with that, and the next four years he spent his time trying to find out whether Pran had survived going into the killing fields uh, when he was thrown out of the, when he left the embassy, and we tried to protect him. And that side of the film, I think, resonates with the Western audience very strongly about uh, a Westerner feeling guilt and the loyalty of that of that episode and the second half of the film is about Cambodians doing horrible things to Cambodians and if it had just been a film about Cambodians doing horrible things to Cambodians I don't think it would have had the impact that it had it was the mixture of the two which was beautifully fused so that an international audience could identify with it in, in, in many different ways. Remember it's always the fixer who dies. Thank you for listening. My name is MP Noonan. One quick addendum. John Swain has sent me some of his articles from 1975 for the Sunday Times, and I'll post them on the webpage. So you can check those out and the photos by Roland Neveu on whokilledhangnor.com. In the next episode, I'll talk with John Swain and Roland Neveu about their experiences when the film was being made. Along with Hang Noor, They were the only people on the set who'd been in Cambodia in 1975. We'll also hear about their impressions of Noor. Remember, this is a crowdsourced podcast, an experiment in journalism. If you knew Hang Noor personally and would like to contribute, even just an interesting anecdote, 
please get in touch. If you know any details about his murder you think are relevant, please get in touch. The best way to reach me is the email whokilledhangnor at gmail.com. Hang is H-A-I-N-G and nor is N-G-O-R. Thank you again.